0: Amen. All right. Well, we're there in Second Peter, chapter number one. And this morning we are beginning a brand new series entitled "A More Sure Word," and we're going to be talking about the Bible for the next three weeks, talking about the Word of God. And I get the title for the series "A More Sure Word" from this passage here in Second Peter chapter one. In fact, I'd like you to look down at verse seventeen just to get a little bit of the context. It says in verse seventeen, "And he received from God the Father honor and glory." This is talking about Jesus, that Jesus received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Here, Peter is recalling what uh, an event that took place, uh, actually this took place twice as far as God saying this, but specifically referring to the event that we would refer to as the Mount of Transfiguration, where uh, Jesus went up with three of his disciples to to the, the Mount of Transfiguration. He was transformed before them, and then they audibly heard the voice of God say about Jesus, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Verse 18 says this, and this voice which... Uh, This voice came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the Holy Mount. So again, uh, Peter is referring back to this event on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter uh, literally, audibly heard the voice of God uh, saying about Jesus, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, what's interesting about that is that in verse 19, he then says this. He says, We have also... A more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. What Peter is saying here is he's saying that he went through an event in his life. He went through a a, 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 a time in his life where he had this supernatural event where he literally audibly heard the voice of God speaking about Jesus, saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. But what's interesting is that Peter then follows that up by saying, you know, putting that aside, he said, even with the fact that I heard the audible voice of God, he says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. He says, the the word of God that we have, and he's talking about the written word of God, what you and I would call the Bible today, he says, this is a more sure word of prophecy, than even what I audibly heard on the Mount of Transfiguration when I heard God speak. Now, that's interesting because we know Peter heard from God. We know that the event of of Mount Transfiguration was something where, you know, it's documented in the Word of God. It was God speaking. It is a true event. But Peter says, you know what's even more sure than what I heard? is the Word of God that is written that we have today. That ought to tell you something about these uh, preachers today that'll get up and say, well, God gave me a word. You know, I heard God say. And then their message will contradict something in the Bible. Well, you know what? Peter's uh, response to that would be, this is a more sure word of prophecy. You know, you say, well, what if somebody tells me that they heard God say? You know what? If it contradicts the Word of God, we need to go with the Word of God. Because the word of God is a more sure word of prophecy, and that's what we're talking about uh, today, and we're going to talk about for the next three weeks, this idea of the more sure word. Now, we're going to cover three different subjects in, in, in regards to the word of God, but we're going to begin this, mo- this morning by talking about why we are... King James only. Why we are King James only. And you may not know this or understand this, and hopefully you'll understand it by the time that the sermon is done this morning. But you walked into an independent fundamental Baptist church, and we are a King James only church. What that means is that we believe that the King James Bible is God's inspired and preserved word in the English language. And I want to explain to you today why we believe that, why we, how we know that, and how we come to that understanding. But before we do that, let me just lay a foundation in regards to some doctrines in regards to the Word of God. Here's what you need to understand. The Bible is not a book like just any other book. The Bible and the Word of God is a perfect book. And you say, well, how do you know that or how do we understand that? The first thing you need to grasp in regards to that is the fact that we believe in the inspiration of Scripture. And in fact, if you if you don't have a, a baby sitting on your lap or something like that, I'd love for you to just write some of these statements down on the back of the course of the week. You have a place uh, to write down some notes. And these are good things for you to just understand, you know, the inspiration of Scripture. What does that mean? We believe in the inspiration of Scripture and the doctrine of inspiration inspiration. Now you're there in 2 Peter chapter 1. We read verses 17 through 19, but look at verse numbers uh, 20 and 21. We actually find the doctrine of inspiration in this chapter. Notice verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, verse 21, for the prophecy... Now keep in mind, he just got done telling us we have also a more sure word of prophecy, talking about the word of God. Then he says this, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Here's what he's saying. No person, no human decided, hey, I'm going to write a book and call it the Bible and say it's God's Word. He says, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. You say, well, then how did it come about? Here's how it came. But holy men of God, notice, spake as they were moved by the holy ghost the bible tells us that the way that we received god's word is that holy men of god spake as they were moved by the holy ghost and here's what you need to understand we believe in the verbal inspiration of scripture and a lot of people don't understand this but this is what the bible teaches it wasn't necessarily that men wrote the word of god although we understand that the word of god was written down and it was perfect but before it was ever written it was spoken Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And we're going to develop that and show you that even more in Scripture. Go to 2 Timothy, chapter number 3. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. You're there in 2 Peter. Uh, If you go backwards, you're going to go past 1 Peter into James, Hebrews, Philemon, Titus, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. We have another verse on the inspiration of Scripture. 2 Timothy, chapter 3, and verse 16. Notice what the Bible says. It says this. All Scripture, all right? Scripture is referring to the Word of God. Notice, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word inspiration means it's God-breathed, meaning God spoke it. It came from His breath. The Word of God was spoken by God, and it was spoken by holy men of God, which spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Let me give you uh, some examples of this. Go to Acts chapter number 1. In the new, at the beginning of the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. While you turn there, I'll read for you out of Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, we have the famous uh, story of the Ten Commandments. And that story begins, or that chapter begins with this verse. You go to Acts 1, but uh, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 says this, And God spake all these words, saying, and then we get into the Ten Commandments. So when we have the Ten Commandments, it wasn't that Moses wrote it down, although Moses did write it down. It wasn't that Moses spoke it, although Moses did speak it. But the Bible tells us that God spake all these words. Are you there in Acts chapter 1? Look at verse 16. Notice, this is the doctrine of inspiration. Acts chapter 1 and verse 16. Men and brethren, the scripture must needs have been fulfilled. Notice, which the Holy Ghost, notice, we're talking about, we're now talking about the book of Psalms or the the writings by King David. Notice what the Bible says, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas which was guide to them that took Jesus. You say, what is the doctrine of inspiration? Here is the doctrine of inspiration. The Holy Ghost, by the mouth of whatever writer we're talking about, spake. So when David wrote the Psalms or spoke the Psalms, when Moses wrote the Word of God, when a different men uh, uh, wrote the Word of God, it wasn't those men writing the Word of God, but it was the Holy Ghost using their mouths to speak that Word and then writing that Word. This is the inspiration of Scripture. Here's what that means. When we come to the Word of God, we don't come to a, a, a Bible written by man. The Holy Ghost might have used the mouth of Peter. He may have used the mouth of Paul. He may have used the mouth of these different men as instruments, but it is the words that God spoke. It is the words that the Holy Spirit spoke. The Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake these words. That's why it says in Exodus 21, and God spake all these words. Go to uh psalm chapter 12 psalm chapter 12 if you open up your bible just right in the center you're more than finally you're more than likely fall into the book of psalms psalm 12 and uh, do me a favor when you get to psalm 12 put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it go to psalm chapter 12 and let me show you this verse the famous verse we're going to leave it and come back to it so make sure you mark it psalm 12 and verse 6 says this the words of the lord are pure words The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. How can you say that the words of the Lord are pure words? The only way you can say that is because the Holy Ghost spake these words. They're not, look, when I speak, my words are not pure. When you speak, your words are not pure, but when God speaks, even through a man, and they're God's words, the words of the Lord are pure words. So when we're talking about the Bible, you say, well, this was a book written by a man. This was a book written by uh, Solomon. It was a book written by Isaiah. It was a book written by Ezekiel. No, holy men of God spake, as they were moved by the holy ghost they are the words of the lord therefore these words are pure words they're not corrupted words they're not defiled words they are Pure, because they are inspired by God. Now keep your place there. Psalm 12, we're coming right back to it. But go to Jeremiah 36. You're there in Psalms. You're going to go past Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah. You say, okay, Pastor, you showed us about the inspiration. How holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. How God spake all these words. How the Holy Ghost spake by the mouth of David. And I just showed you a few examples. We could spend a lot of time going through all sorts of different references proving that point. But you say, well, how did it get written down? How was it written? Well, in Jeremiah 36, we're told, we're given an example about how the book of Jeremiah was written. Jeremiah 36 and verse 4 says this, Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote, notice what it says, and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord. You say, how does this work? Here's how it works. Holy men of God spake, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost spake by the mouth, in this case, of Jeremiah. And then, in some cases, you had the same man write down the the text. In other cases, like here, Baruch actually wrote what came out from the mouth of Jeremiah, which was all the words of the Lord. This is the doctrine of inspiration. This is how we got transcription. This is how we got the Word of God. The Holy Ghost spoke. By the way, that's why you need to be careful about getting too hung up, and I realize that there is some validity to it, but be careful about getting too hung up about, you know, well, in this King James Bible, the period is here, and in this King James Bible, the comma is here, and, you know, things like that. Realize that the Word of God was first spoken, and it wasn't like Jeremiah was, you know, speaking and then saying space, comma, colon, exclamation you know uh, and, and i realize that there, there, there's a place for all that but be careful about getting too hung up on these things because the word of god was first spoken and then it was written down in the bible or what we now know as the bible go back to psalm chapter 12 we talked about the doctrine of inspiration what is the doctrine of inspiration god spoke through men the holy uh, holy men uh, spake as they were moved by the holy ghost but let's and here's what you need to understand Virtually any Christian or every Christian, you know, real Christians and so-called Christians are going to believe in the doctrine of inspiration. No one's going to argue with you. Everyone believes, yes, the originals were inspired by God. The original documents that Paul wrote, that Peter wrote, that Matthew wrote, that Moses wrote, that whoever wrote were inspired by God. Most Christians believe this and understand this. Where we lose a lot of Christians is in the doctrine of preservation. See, we not only believe in the inspiration of Scripture, but we also believe in the preservation of Scripture. You say, well, what does that mean? We'll go back to Psalm chapter 12 and um, look at verse, we saw verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, that's inspiration, as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Here's preservation, verse 7, thou shalt keep them, O Lord. So according to Psalm 12, 7, whose job is it to keep Those pure words. It's God's job. Who is the preserver of God's word? It is God. He says, thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt, notice this word, preserve them from this generation. When the psalmist is speaking, he's saying, you're going to preserve your words from this generation for how long? Forever. He says, it's God's job to preserve His Word. Go to Psalm 119 and verse 89. Psalm 119. You're there in Psalm 12. Just flip a few pages over to Psalm 119, 89. See, we not only believe in the inspiration of Scripture, but we believe in the preservation or preservation of Scripture. Psalm 119 and verse 89. Notice what the Bible says. Psalm 119, 89 says this. Forever, O Lord. Notice thy word is settled in heaven. See, it is God's job. See, God is not confused about what his word says. God is not confused about where his word is. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Go to Isaiah chapter 40. I'm just giving you a lot of verses just to give you uh, references to to understand where we get these doctrines. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. If you were just in Jeremiah, so right before Jeremiah, you have the book of Isaiah. Because here's what you need to understand. Most Christians today, in fact, many Christians today, they'll tell you, yes, I believe in the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. God spake through men, and they wrote down the Word of God. And they'll say, yes, when Moses wrote it, yes, when Joshua wrote it, yes, when whoever wrote it, you know, when Ezra wrote it, when Nehemiah wrote it, that was God's inspired Word. And then you'll ask them, but do we have God's inspired Word here today on earth? And they'll say, no. And you ask them, why? Well, you know, yes, it was inspired when God gave it, but then men began to copy it, and men began to translate it, and men began, and they messed with it, and we've now lost the Word of God. Now, think about how silly that is, because they'll say, see, it wasn't God's fault, it's because man messed up. Because man couldn't, you know, uh, copy it right. Man couldn't translate it right. Man, but here's what's silly about that. The same people who tell you, yes, I believe that God used men to give us His Word perfectly. Now, all of a sudden, that same God can't use men to preserve His Word? See, here's the truth of the matter. You either believe in the inspiration of Scripture and the preservation of Scripture, or you don't believe in either. Because it's silly to say, God could use a man like Moses, who was a sinner. God could use a man like David, who was a sinner. God could use a man like Paul, who was a sinner, to give us his perfect word. But then he couldn't also use other men to preserve his word. (laughs) Look, you either believe that God is powerful enough to make sure that man didn't mess it up at the state of inspiration. And that that same God is just as powerful to make sure that man doesn't mess it up at the state of Preservation, because it is God's job, not man's job, uh, to preserve. Thou to preserve His word. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Isaiah chapter forty, verse eight. Notice what it says: The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. That is the preservation of Scripture. You will not ever lose the word of God. It will be preserved, why? Because the same God who gave it to us is the same God who will preserve it. That's the inspiration of Scripture. That's the preservation of Scripture. There's, there's another doctrine in regards to the Word of God, which is referred to as the illumination of Scripture. We're actually going to talk about that next week in, in the sermon next week. But let's talk about this for a little bit. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans 1, 2 Corinthians. We talked about the perfect Word of God. Look, there must be a perfect Word of God. Otherwise, God is a liar. Because God the Bible says, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Right. Now, here's what you need to understand. Are there corrupted versions of the Word of God today? And the answer is yes. You say, well, show me that from the Bible. Okay, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Notice that at the time that Paul was living, when Paul was writing the second letter to the church at Corinth, notice what he said what was going on even at the time of Paul himself? 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17 says this For we are not, notice what he says, we are not as many. So notice, Paul is telling us there are many people that are doing what? Notice, which corrupt the word of God. I want you to understand this. Even at the time when Paul was still alive and writing, the Word of God, even before the completion of the New Testament, there were already many, the Bible says, which were corrupting, which corrupt the Word of God. He says, we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God, but he says, there are many. There are people, back in the day of Paul, there were people who were corrupting the Word of God, and let me tell you something, today there are people who are corrupting the Word of God. And it's always been this way. You say, well, why are there corrupted versions of the Bible? You know, are there corrupted versions of the Bible? The answer is yes. According to the Apostle Paul, even during his time, there were many who corrupted the Word of God. And please understand this. Not everything that calls itself a Bible is God's Word. Not everything that calls itself the, you know, the Holy Scriptures is holy, is pure. Now, you say, well, why? Why are there corrupted versions of God's Word? Go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, should be fairly easy to find, first book in the Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 3. Now we saw that even during the time of Paul, there were people who were already corrupting the Word of God. He says, we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God. But I want you to understand this, that Satan has been fighting to corrupt God's Word from the very beginning. It is Satan who is corrupting the Word of God. It is Satan who is using his uh, servants to corrupt the Word of God. Genesis chapter 3, look at verse 1. Of course, we have the famous story here of the fall of man, when Satan tempted Eve, and Eve influenced Adam, and they, they sinned against God. But I want you to notice how this was done. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. The Bible says this, Now the serpent, that's Satan, was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, I want you to notice, the very first time we see Satan in the Bible, in fact, the first words that come out of his mouth in the entire Bible, notice what he says. He says, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, God has told him, you're not allowed to, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the first words that come out of Satan's mouth, he is questioning the word of God. He's putting a question mark on what God said. Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the And by the way, He's already changed God's word. Because God didn't say you're not allowed to eat of every tree of the garden. He said you're not allowed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he's, he's questioning God's word. He's casting doubt upon God's word. He's asking the question in a way where it already changed what God said. And the woman said, verse 2, Unto the serpent we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, And the serpent, that's Satan, said unto the woman, notice, the second statement that come out of, comes out of his mouth, he's already corrupted the word of God. He says, ye shall not surely die. Now God said, ye shall die. He said, the day ye eat thereof, ye shall die. And Satan says, no you won't. Ye shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as God's, knowing good and evil. And from the Garden of Eden, Satan has been questioning. Satan has been casting doubt upon. Satan has been corrupting and changing the word of God. Go to Revelation 22. Last book in the Bible should be fairly easy to find. Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22. See, people need to understand, because today most quote-unquote Christians are so naive they think, oh, every Bible is a good Bible. There's no such thing as a corrupted Bible. There's no such thing as a bad Bible. Well, if you believe that, then you don't believe Paul because Paul said, we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God. According to Paul, there are people who are corrupting the Word of God. And those people are influenced by Satan, whose agenda from the very beginning has been to change and cast out and and destroy the Word of God. Now you say, well, why would Satan want to, you know, corrupt the Word of God? And look, it comes down to this. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of this darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The Bible tells us that the way we engage into spiritual battle is by putting on the armor of God. And when you put on the armor of God, if you study that passage in Ephesians six, it's all defensive. You've got a helmet, you've got a shield, you've got a breastplate, you've got things to defend you. There are one, and you could argue two things that are given in that passage as a as a weapon. One is referred, to, you know, is referenced to at the end as prayer, although it's not necessarily put into the armor of God. But the only weapon you're given in that armor of God is the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Yes. Satan understands that the only, uh, you, you, the only weapon we have against him and against his forces is this book right here. And if he can corrupt it, if he can destroy it, if he can cast down upon it, if he can make people believe it's cunningly devised fables, then he'll win. He'll win the battle. If He can disarm us, if He can take our weapon, then He can beat us. And this is why from the beginning, from the beginning, there has been an assault upon the Word of God. This is why, by the way, God placed a curse upon those who would mess with His Word. Revelation 22, look at verse 18. Revelation 22, 18 says this, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. Notice what he says. If any man shall add... Unto these things. You say, well, who would ever do that? Uh, how about Joseph Smith? I mean, how about the Book of Mormon? How about the, you know, there, there's all sorts of men that have added to God's word. He says, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Verse 19. If any shall take away, you say, well, who would do that? Well, we're about to see in a little bit the people who would take away from the word of God. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, notice, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. You say, why would God put a curse on those who would corrupt the word of God? Here's why. Because there are many who are corrupting the word of God. And you need to, you you know, you need to at least wake up to the fact that not everything that calls itself a Bible is a Bible. Not everything that calls itself the word of God is the word of God. Because there are corrupted versions of the Bible out there. So here's the next question, and this is really where I want to spend the sermon, is, okay, Pastor Jimenez, I, I get it. We have the inspiration of Scripture. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And then we have the preservation of Scripture. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And there are corrupted versions of God. We are not as many which corrupt the Word of God. So if there are corrupted versions of the word of God out there right now, and there is also the perfect, the incorruptible word of God out there right now, because God said that he would preserve his word, then how can we tell? How do we know which one is God's word and which one is not? Well, there are basically two ways. I want to just go through this with you this morning. There are two ways to identify which is the true word of God today. The first way is by examining the source text. Now, I'm not going to get a lot into this this morning because I don't want to, uh, you know, go too deep into this and 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 uh, and confuse you. But I, I want to give you enough for you to understand. When it comes to the modern Bible versions, you need to understand that they're not just separate translations or different translations from the same Greek text, okay? The New Testament was primarily written in Greek. We're going to talk about the New Testament uh, this morning. The New Testament was primarily written in Greek, and most people believe that when people translated the Word of God, they went to the Greek text, and they translated the King James Bible. And then another group went to the same Greek text and translated the New International Version. And then another group went to the same Greek text and translated the English Standard Version. And that they all just kind of saw things differently, interpreted things differently. And by the way, we read in Second Peter that the the Word of God is not to, uh, to be had to any private interpretation. But people think like, oh, they just interpreted it differently, translated it differently, and that's why we just have a lot of different translations of the same Greek text. Here's what you need to understand. That is not true. When you look at the source text, there are actually two different Greek texts that the bibles are translated from. Let me give you just some quick facts about the Greek text. The New Testament, like I said, was primarily written in Greek. Okay, please understand a couple of things because there's lots of misconceptions that people have. People say, oh, well, when you go back to the originals, let me tell you something. When somebody tells you they went back to the originals, they are ignorant or they are lying or they are both because the originals do not exist. The originals are not on this earth. You cannot find a piece of scripture and say, this is the original document that was written by Baruch when he wrote the book of Jeremiah at the mouth of Jeremiah. This is the original document that Paul wrote. This is the original document that that Moses wrote. The originals are all gone. Anything that we have and anything that they have is a copy of the originals. The originals do not exist on this earth. Now, there are 5,309 existing Greek manuscripts of the New Testament available. Here's what we mean by that. There are, there have been identified 5,309 manuscripts. Now, a manuscript could be just a little piece of a passage of scripture, or it could be an almost complete passage of scripture. Some are large, some are small, but there are 5,309 existing Greek manuscripts of the New Testament available. Of those 5,309 existing manuscripts that exist today, 95 to 97% of them agree with each other. So if we were able to go and get all 5,309 manuscripts that exist on this earth today, that is where we got the Word of God from, and you compared them, because there's obviously overlaps, there's lots of them that have John 316. there's lots of them that have you know uh, overlaps on the books of the Bible. if you compared where they all overlap, 95 to 97 percent of them are exactly the same. They all agree. Now this family of manuscripts, the ones that agree with each other, the 95 to 97 percent are called the majority text. they're obviously called text because the majority of the texts agree and let me just give you a little bit of history and I don't want to go too deep into this there was a, a, a man by the name of Erasmus who was a brilliant scholar he basically examined the collection of the majority texts of these Greek manuscripts and he compiled them into a Greek New Testament all right that Greek New Testament is known today as the Textus Receptus. Erasmus, took, he went and found he, he found, he examined the 5,309 manuscripts. He found where 95 to 90% of them matched. So here's what that means, and here's what you need to understand. If you have just, this is just an example. I'm just going to pull this, uh, you know, out of thin air. This is not a real example. But just to kind of help you understand. If Erasmus found, you know, 100 manuscripts that all had John 3.16 in it. And of the 100 of of those manuscripts that had John 3.16, 95 of them said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And again, this is just an example. I'm not telling you this is what he did. I'm just trying to help you understand. And let's say that five said, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Then what Erasmus did is that he went with the majority text, and in his Greek New Testament, he wrote what the majority of the 5,309 manuscripts said and ignored the minority that had differences, all right? So he, he wrote the Textus Receptus, or he compiled the Textus Receptus, which is the Greek New Testament, and he compiled it from the majority of the manuscripts that are available out there today. His text is known as the Textus Receptus. Here's what you need to understand. The King James Bible that we use today is based on the Greek text that Erasmus compiled, the Texas Receptus. So when we look at our King James Bible, this King James Bible was translated into English from the Greek Texas Receptus, New Testament, that Erasmus compiled from the majority of the 5,309 manuscripts that are available today. A couple of things to consider. Every ancient Bible version. Because keep in mind that the Bible was translated into different languages before it was translated into English. And some of them are very ancient. Every ancient Bible version followed the reading of the Texas Receptus. Here's what that means. If you take the Texas Receptus that Erasmus compiled and you compare it against ancient Bible versions that were translated, you know, hundreds of years ago into different languages, they wouldn't match... Now, doesn't that make sense? Because it's the majority text, because it's what most people saw as the Word of God. So, let me just give you a few examples. The Peshitta version, which was translated in 150 AD. So, 150 years after Christ, you have the Peshitta version of the Bible, and it matches perfectly with Erasmus' Textus Receptus. The uh, Italic Bible translated in 157 AD, matches with the Texas Receptus, The Waldensian Bible, uh, which was translated in 120 AD. The Gaelic Bible, translated in 177 AD. The Gothic Bible, translated in 330 AD. The Old Syriac Bible, translated in 400 AD. The Armenian Bible, translated in 400 AD. There are still 1,244 copies of this version in existence today. Matches the Texas Receptus. The Palestinian Syriac, uh, translated in 450 A.D. The French Bible of uh, Olivetan was translated in uh, 1535 A.D. The Czech Bible was translated in 1602 A.D. The Italian Bible was translated in 1606 A.D. All of these ancient Bibles match up with Erasmus's Texas Receptus. The ancient versions followed the reading of the Texas Receptus. You say, why is that? Because this is the Bible that has been used through the ages. From the time of Christ till the the 20th century, till the end of the 1900s, this was and is the Bible that has been in existence in the world. Let me say this, the Texas Receptus, is the text that all English Bibles were based on after William Tyndale translated the New Testament into English until the 20th century, until the late 1800s, early 1900s. So you have William Tyndale in 1526 translating the New Testament into English from Greek, and he used Erasmus' text. You have the Miles Coverdale Bible, in 1535, matches the Texas Receptus. The Matthews Bible, in 1500 and, uh, to 1555, is the Texas Receptus. The Great Bible, 1539, Texas Receptus. The Geneva Bible, 1560, t- is the Texas Receptus. The Bishop's Bible, 1568, Texas Receptus. The King James Version, of the Bible today, the one you have in your hand, translated from, the Texas Receptus. Now, keep in mind, you're 1611, your, your King James Bible is going to look different than the 1611 Bible uh, that was translated 400 years ago because it has gone through revisions where they have updated the language. They've uh, uh, standardized the uh, grammar. This is why I tell you, you need to be careful about you know, being too concerned about where the comma was and where the colon was or whatever it might be. Remember that the holy man of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The words weren't changed, but the the spelling may have been standardized. The grammar may have been standardized. But every English Bible, from William Tyndale to the King James Bible, used the Texas Receptus as its base. And I'm not going to preach on this. I'm thinking of making a video about this uh, for our YouTube channel. But it's interesting because in Psalm 12:6 it says, "...the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace of earth." purified seven times. The Bible says that the words of God are like silver that are going to be purified seven times. It's interesting that from William Tyndale's Bible to the King James Bible, you've got seven English Bibles that basically were being purified and purified and purified till we got our King James Version today, which God says, thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So when you're talking about ancient Bibles... And when you're talking about Reformed time Bibles, the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, all of these Bibles were translated from the Greek text, which today is known as the Texas Receptus, or the majority text. They were translated when we took the manuscripts, or they took the manuscripts, the 5,309 manuscripts, and they took the 95 to 97% that, uh, that matched each other, and they translated their Bibles from there. That's where we get our Word of God. Now, please understand this. All that to say this. The new versions of the Bible, the New International Version, the American Standard Version, the English Standard Version, the whatever paraphrase you, you see in the Christian bookstore, whatever. all of the new versions of the Bible are translated from a different Greek text. Now, look, that ought to say something to you. They're tra- after the 20th century, after the late 1800s, early 1900s, every Bible, every ancient Bible, every English Bible, every Bible that existed in this world were all translated from the same Greek text, from the Textus Receptus, which was com- uh, com- uh, compiled from the majority of the 5,309 manuscripts. But in the 20th century, a new Greek text was compiled. You say, well, where was it from? Well, remember the 5,309 manuscripts we have? 95 to 97% of them all match. Someone decided, and there was men by the name of Westcott and Hort, to take the 3 to 5% that disagreed with the majority text. They took the 3 to 5% manuscripts that did not agree with the rest of Scripture, and they made their own... uh, 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 Greek text out of it. This is referred to as the minority text. Now, why is it called the minority text? Because of the fact that it only uses three to five percent of the uh, manuscripts that are out there. You know. Let me say this also about the textus receptus. It's not only called the majority text. It's also called the traditional text. Why is it called the traditional text? Because it's the traditional text that has been used from the time of Christ to the 20th century. Westcott and Hort took this minority text and they developed their own Greek text out of it, known as the Westcott and Hort. There's been revisions of it. It's been called different things, but it's the same Greek text. All New Modern Bible versions are based off of Westcott and Hort's Greek New Testament, which uses the minority of the resources that are out there, of the manuscripts that are out there. Let me give you just some facts. The Westcott and Hort Greek text is based uh, primarily on the Sinaiticus, and the Vaticanus, which are these uh, corrupted manuscripts that were recently found in the 20th century. The new Bible versions are based on the Greek New Testament compiled by Westcott and Hort. The Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, just understand this, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus contradict each other over 3,000 times in the Gospels alone. The Codex uh, Sinaiticus, which is also referred to as the Aleph or the A, was put in the trash heap by the monks in St. Catherine's Monastery. It was literally found, when they discovered it, it was found in a trash can in this monastery, you know, in the 20th century. On nearly every page of the manuscript, there are corrections and revisions done by 10 different people. The Codex Vaticanus, which is referred to as the B is kept by the Roman Catholic Church was was fi- as found in the Vatican. And you know, that's a real godly place that we can all trust, right? It was found in the it was it was it was found in the Vatican. It's called the Vaticanus. In the gospels alone, it leaves out 237 words, 452 clauses, 748 entire sentences. The early Christians rejected these manuscripts. So they were cast aside for thousands of years until they were later dug up and called ancient manuscripts. The Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, today you say, well, why would someone ignore 95 to 97% of the manuscripts that are out there that all agree with each other, that all say the same thing, and take the 5 to 7% that disagree with each other? Why would they do that? And here's their thinking. Their thinking is this. These manuscripts are older then those manuscripts, therefore, they must be reliable. Older, in their minds, equals reliable. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that we read in 2 Corinthians, Paul testified to the fact that even at his time, there were many who were corrupting the Word of God. So what if at the time of Paul, some heathen, pagan, false prophet corrupted the Word of God, buried it somewhere it was never seen for a thousand two thousand years in the 1800s it was found and they'll say well look at this is older than all these other ones that we have therefore it must be more reliable look just because it's older doesn't mean it's reliable you say how do you know if something's reliable if it agrees with the majority it's reliable mm-hmm. do you understand that let me give you an example and in, in a minute we're going to go through and we're actually going to compare the king james bible with other versions of the bible But let me give you an example. In my office, I have, and and we're going to use them here today, I have, of course, my King James Bible, and I have a new King James version of the Bible in my office. I have a new international version of the Bible in my office. I have a new American standard version of the Bible in my office. I have an English standard version in my office. I've got a uh, uh, Jehovah's Witness, uh, whatever they call it, New World Translation in my office. I have all those in uh, in my office. Now, do you think I read out of them? No. You think I study them? No. You say, why do you have them there? I have them there for one reason, to show people what's wrong with them, to use them in sermons like this to compare with and show people what's wrong with them. You look at my King James Bible, if you open it up, my Bible is a lot like some of your guys' Bibles. It's all uh, marked up. It's got notes all over it. It's got writings in it. There's papers. There's pages that are torn on it. There's binding that's being loosed on it. You say, what, why is this one so, you know, uh, uh, not, not as well preserved as those other ones? Here's why. Because this is the one I use. You understand that? So, look, if my office was just lost for years, for 500 years it was lost and somebody came back and they excavated it and they didn't find my King James because it's all torn up, because it's all destroyed, because I have it with me in my briefcase, you know, and they didn't find it, but they found the NIV in the trash can 500 years from now and they're like, look at this thing. It's in real good condition. Yeah, it's in good condition because it's a piece of trash. You understand? But this is the thinking that these people have. Oh, well, the Sinaiticus, it's, an old, it's older. So, but look, older doesn't mean more reliable. In fact, when it's preserved and in pristine state and it was found in some you know, trash can or it's found in the basement of the Vatican and it hasn't been seen for thousands of years, you've got to ask yourself, Why? You know, the fact that it's older and in good condition should make us more suspicious, not less suspicious. You say, yeah, but those ones that match the majority of text, they're all ripped up. They're all, you know, in fragments. They're all falling apart. Yeah, because that's the ones they were using. That's the ones they were preaching out of. So look, just a simple, logical understanding of the Greek source of these texts should tell you that one is true and one is not, because they're not translated from the same Greek text. All modern Bible versions, with the exception of the New King James, and the New King James is bad, and I'll explain to you why and we'll talk about it. All modern Bible versions are translated from the Westcott and Hort Greek New Testament or the, the revised ones that came out of Westcott and Hort. They're translated from that Greek text. The King James and everything before it, all the way to 100 years or 150 years after Christ, all come from the majority text or the Texas Receptus. These do not come from the same source. Now, here's what you you need to understand. If you say the Texas Receptus is bad and the Westcott and Horde is good, then here's what you have to believe. That for 2,000 years to the 20th century, the Word of God was not on this earth because it was in a trash can in a monastery because it was in a basement in the Vatican because it was in a cave by the Dead Sea. If you believe that, then you have to believe that from the time of Christ till the 20th century, there was no word of God on this earth. But God said, the Bible says, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them, what the psalmist said, from this generation forever. Look, the word of God has always been on this earth. It's not been hidden in a cave. It's not been hidden in, an, in, a, in a basement. It's not been. It's been accessible to the masses. So just understanding the source text should give you a real good idea of which one is the good and which one is is the is the bad text. But there's another way, an even simpler way. You say, well, Pastor Man, I don't know. Some of that went over my head, and I don't understand all that history, and, and I'm not sure what I think about that. There's an even simpler way of understanding which one is good and which one is bad. Because here's what we have. We have the true word of God and we have corrupted versions, correct? We have the true one and the counterfeit. Now, when it comes to determining what a counterfeit is, when I was uh, younger, when I first got married, I, I worked in a, in a location where we handled a lot of money and there was a lot of uh, you know, counterfeits of money that would come in. And we took some training on how to identify a, a count, counterfeit money. And you know what's interesting is that most people think when you, get, when you receive training as to how to identify counterfeit money, you think that they're going to, at least this is what I thought, I thought they were going to sit there and, and show me like, hey, you know, this is how you know this is a counterfeit. You know, they messed up right here at the two or look for this or look for that or look for whatever. But the truth of the matter is when you're being trained to find counterfeit money, they don't even have you look at counterfeit money. You know why? Because counterfeit money is constantly changing. So if they tell you, like, look for these three things, well, the next batch is not going to have those three things. So you say, well, how do they train you to look for counterfeit money? You know what they actually train you to do? is they, can't, they, they train you to get real comfortable with the real thing. A lot of the training for looking for counterfeit money was just counting real money. Because if you get used to just counting and looking at real money, as soon as a counterfeit one comes through your fingers, you're like, ah, this isn't the same. This isn't the same as the other ones. 95 to 97 of the majority feel like, look like, are like a certain thing, and this 5 to 7% is not, I've got a counterfeit. I mean, how do, you, how, how do you tell the difference between a diamond and a cubic zirconium? You know, some of you, your wives out there, they think they've got a real nice diamond. And as long as they're the only ones that are looking at it or other women are the only ones that are looking at it, it's fine. But you give that cubic zirconium to a jeweler and you put a real diamond next to it, he'll be able to tell the difference. So how can you tell when something's counterfeit? Well, you just put it up against the real thing. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to just take the King James Bible, which was brought from the Texas Receptus. And we're just going to compare it to all the other versions the new IV, the new IV, the NIV, the ESV, the uh, New American Standard, the New King James. We're going to compare it, and I think it should be real easy to tell the difference which ones are the real thing and which ones are not. Now, I asked some of the young men in our church to help me with this, so I'm going to have those guys come up here at this time. Come on up, guys, and take your place. And what we're going to do is we're just going to compare scriptures. We're going to compare versions of the Bible and we're going to, we're, let me just begin by, I'm going to have these guys go ahead and uh, present themselves to you. So why don't you start, give us your name and the version of the Bible that you'll be reading from.
1: My name is Garrett Pzernsky, I'll be reading out of the New International Version. My name is Dominic Santiago, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version.
2: My name is James Bahamundi. I'll be reading out of the New American Standard Version.
1: My name is Moses Thompson, I'll be reading out of the New King James Version. Alright,
0: so let's go ahead and we're just going to compare. We're just going to compare Scripture. If you've got a King James Bible with you, then turn to these passages. And if you don't have a King James Bible, turn to these passages with you. So we can just look at the differences, alright? Go to Luke chapter 2 and verse 33. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 2 verse 33. Now here's the truth. We could spend all day looking at comparisons between the King James Bible and the other versions of the Bible. We're not going to do that. But I am going to just show you some highlights to show you some differences between these Bible versions. Luke chapter 2 and verse 33 in the King James Bible says this, And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. The him there is referring to Jesus. Just so you get the context, this is Jesus. He's 12 years old. He's in the temple. And uh, Joseph and Mary are looking for him. And when they find him, the King James Bible, the narrator, who is Luke, but we know that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It's really the Holy Ghost speaking here. He's very careful to say, and Joseph, which was Jesus' stepfather, and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken, which were spoken of him. All right? Uh, what does the New International Version say in that
1: verse? Luke 2, 2.33 in the NIV says, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him
0: now hold on a second and you may think well that was basically the same thing but notice there was a difference the king james said joseph and his mother the new international version said the child's father and mother now let me ask you a question who was the father of the lord jesus christ it's god god the father god was his father was joseph the physical father of jesus the answer is no you say, well, is that that big of a deal? It is a big deal if you're believing that Jesus is God in the flesh. It is a big deal if you're trusting in Jesus to atone for your sins. Because guess what? If Joseph and Mary were the physical parents of Jesus, you know what that would make Jesus? A man, like you and I. A descendant of Adam. It would make him a sinner. It, doesn't the Bible say that, you know, be, that we're all sinners because we come from the, uh, the, the lineage, the line of Adam? And here you've got, you say, oh, it's a small change?" Yeah, but it attacks a very important doctrine, which is the deity of Jesus Christ. You say, okay, well, you know, maybe that was just a mistake. All right, well, how about the English Standard Version? What does the English Standard Version say in this verse?
3: Luke two thirty three it says, And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him.
0: Now, notice that. It says his father. The NIV said the child's father. This one says his father. Again, who's the father of Jesus? God the father. Was Joseph the father of Jesus? No, he was a stepfather, but he was not his father. But the, it's interesting how the, the King James is careful to say Joseph and his mother, but the English Standard says his father and his mother. The New International Version says the child's father and his mother. What about the New American Standard? New American Standard Bible.
2: Version. Luke two thirty three and his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him.
0: Now, I want you to notice something about these Bible versions. You notice how the New International Version, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version—they all say the same thing, but they're all different from the King James. You say, why is that? Because one comes from the Texas Receptus, and one comes from the Westcott and Hort. It's two different lines. They don't come from the same. One is corrupted. It's attacking the deity of Christ and the other one is not. You say, oh, that's just a coincidence. Okay, well, let's go to John chapter 3 and verse 36. John chapter 3 and verse 36. Now, in John 3, 36, here's what the Word of God says. The King James Bible says this, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Amen. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now, that, doesn't that make sense? It says, he that believeth will be saved, hath everlasting life, but he that believeth not, because what's the opposite of believing? It's not believing. He that believeth not, the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So if you don't believe in the Son, the wrath of God abides you. If you believe on the Son, you have everlasting life. That's what the King James uh, Bible says. What does the English Standard Version say?
3: English Standard Version Whosoever, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life and who do, whosoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him.
0: Now, I don't know if you caught that. King James says, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not, the opposite of believing, the Son shall not see life. English Standard Version, whosoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Okay, but then it says this, whosoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Now, is not obeying the opposite of believing? You say, well, why would they do that? Here's why they're doing that. Because not only do they corrupt, not only do they attack the deity of Christ, but now they're attacking salvation by grace through faith. Because when, when you think somebody picks up their, their, their ESV and they say, whosoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And they're like, oh, okay, so salvation is believing. And then they read, whosoever does not obey, and then they're like, well, I guess I have to obey too. You know what, that's, you know what that is? that is? That's not even worse to salvation. It's an attack on the Word of God. What about the New American Standard Version?
2: New American Standard Version, uh, John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him.
0: I want you to notice, King James, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. English Standard Version does not obey. New American Standard Bible uh, Version does not obey. Now look, I think it was Curtis Hudson who made the phrase uh, popular. Things that are different are not the same. These Bibles are saying two different things. One is saying that if you don't believe, you go to hell. One is saying that if you don't obey, you go to hell. One of them's true. One of them's not. I think it's real obvious when you understand when you match it up to the majority of Scripture that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, not by works of righteousness, which we have none. All throughout the Bible, we're taught. But you say, why would they do this? Here's why they would do it: because they're attacking. Look, if Satan was going to attack the Bible, don't you think he'd attack things like the deity of Christ? Don't you think he'd attack things like salvation by grace through faith? Okay, let's go to another one. Acts chapter 8, verses 36, 37, and 38. Acts chapter 8, verses 36, 37, and 38. I'm going to read it to you out of the King James. Verse 36 says this, And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Verse 37 says this, and Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both, the eunuch and, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. All right? That's the King James Version, Acts 8, verse 36, verse 37, verse 38. Let's read it out of the New International Version, those three verses.
1: Acts eight thirty six in the NIV says, as they traveled along the road they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Verse thirty eight. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him.
0: Now hold on a second. I want you to notice that Brother Garrett there skipped a verse. He did not read verse thirty seven. Garrett, why did you not read verse thirty seven?
1: I didn't read verse thirty seven because it is not there. It's missing.
0: Verse 37 is missing in the New International Version. Now, Garrett, can you just tell me how the numbering goes?
1: It goes verse 36, and it just skips verse 38.
0: And it just skips down to verse 38. They they can't even count right. And and here's what's interesting. It's just an entire verse is just omitted from the New International Version. Uh, How about the English Standard Version? Let's read it out of there.
3: Acts 8.36, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch says, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he
0: baptized them. Now look, these kids, these guys are homeschooled, right? They know how to read. It's, it's not, it, why, Dominic, why did you not read Verse 37.
3: 37 is missing.
0: Because verse 37 is missing. The entire verse is missing. And here's what's interesting. Here's what you need to understand. There are 16 entire verses missing from the modern Bible versions. 16 verses that are completely gone. And they don't even change the number. And it just goes 34, 35, 36, 38. And, and, and it's interesting because it, look at the verse that was removed. Acts 8, 30, 36 and as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What does hinder me baptized? In verse 36, you have the eunuch asking, What is hindering me? What is stopping me from getting baptized? In verse 38, he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. In verse 36, he's asking, What's stopping me from getting baptized? In verse 38, he's getting baptized. What's missing? Verse 37, and Philip said, because remember, he asked, What's stopping me from getting baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You think it's a coincidence that the verse that tells you that you have to believe and that has the eunuch, you know, confessing, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You think it's a coincidence that that's the verse that's missing? You think it's a coincidence that this was found in the Vatican who doesn't believe that you have to get baptized after salvation? Who believes? Because look, if, if you read out of the ESV, what does hinder me to be baptized? Apparently nothing, because you go down to verse 38, they're baptizing them. You don't have to, there's no, if thou believest with all thine heart. You know, here's why. Because if thou believest with all thine heart, you know what that stops? That stops baby baptisms. If thou believest with all thine heart, that stops, you know, being baptized for salvation, because you have to get baptized after salvation, after you believe. So look, entire, version, entire verses of the Bible are completely removed. 16 entire verses of the Bible are removed. But let me just say this. That doesn't tell you the whole story. You say, 16 entire verses of the Bible are removed from the New Testament? Yes, that's true. But there are so many verses where just phrases and sentences are removed, complete chunks of a verse, where the verse isn't removed, but like half of it is. There's so many instances like that, that it's way more than just 16 verses that are gone. A lot of the scripture is missing in these modern Bible versions. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 14. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 14. Here's what the King James Version says. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Jesus is talking about people that go to heaven. And here's what Jesus says in the King James Bible. Straight is the gate. The word straight means a narrow passage. All right? So he says... Straight is the gate. He says, the passage that gets you to heaven is narrow. And then he emphasizes, he says, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Here's what Jesus is saying: most people are going to hell. There's only few that are going to heaven. He he also says, Broad is the way. He says, You know, wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction and many there be which go in thereat. So here the King James Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, straight is the gate and narrow is the way. What is the English Standard Version saying?
3: It says in Matthew chapter 7, and verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find
0: it are few. So notice that it changed it. Jesus said in the King James, straight is the gate and narrow is the way. Two different ways of saying the same thing. It's a narrow passage, it's a narrow way. The English standard says, narrow and the way, you know, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard. Okay, now why would they say that going to heaven is hard? Is going to heaven hard? Is it hard to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Didn't Jesus say that except you be converted as and become as little children? Didn't Jesus say that going to heaven was as easy as a a little child would do it, simply putting their faith and trust in Jesus? say, well, why would would the modern Bible versions change it to make it sound like it's hard to go to heaven? Well, this is the same versions that tell you you got to obey to go to heaven. So, look, if I have to obey to go to heaven, that would be hard. They're attacking the doctrine of salvation. Now, today we have a lot of people say, well, what about the new King James Version? Because the new King James Version, you know, that's King James, isn't it? Look, we don't worship the name King James. All right? You say, why do you guys believe in the King James Bible? Because that happens to be the name of the version that's the right one. But the New King James Version, and, and I don't want to get too far into this, but let me just say this. The New King James is a little more deceptive because they'll say, oh, well, we translated from the Texas Receptus, like the original King James. But here's where they lie to you, or here's where the difference is. When it comes to the places where there are differences between the majority text and the minority text, they go with the minority text every time. So they'll say, well, we translated from the Texas Receptus, but wherever there's a difference between the Texas Receptus and the West Garden Hort, then they go with the West Garden Hort. So it's as corrupt as the other versions are. Let me give you an example. What does the New King James Version say in Matthew chapter 7, and verse 14?
1: Matthew uh, chapter 7, verse 14 in the New King James says, Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it.
0: So notice this is the same thing as the English Standard Version. Says the same thing as the rest of them. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I realize we're taking a little longer um, than I normally do on a Sunday morning, but you know, I-, I think this is an important subject for you to really understand and grasp. And also I want to show you a lot of uh, passages because I don't want you to think like, oh, he's just pulling out. You know, this is all throughout the Bible. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says this: For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us. Which are saved, it is the power of God. What does the New International Version say? First 1 Corinthians one eighteen.
1: In the NIV, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, hold on a second.
0: King James says, unto us which are saved, New NIV says, to us who are being saved. Now, look, are you being saved? Look, being saved, being saved, getting saved happens in a moment. Jesus called it being born again. It happens in a moment. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. You're passed from death unto life. You don't, you're not in the process. Look, salvation's not a process. You're not being saved. You either are saved or you're not. You either believed or you haven't. You say, well, why would the NIV call it being saved? Well, because if it's hard to get to heaven, if I have to obey to get to heaven, then yeah, it's a process. But that's not what the Bible says. So here, you say, well, it's not that big of a difference. It's, it's a small change, but it changes a lot in the doctrine. How about the English Standard Version?
3: 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God.
0: Again, being saved. What does the New American Standard Version say?
3: 1 Corinthians uh, one eighteen.
2: for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved,
1: it is the power of God.
0: What about the New King James Version? Oh, it's the New King James. This one should be good, right? 1 Corinthians one eighteen.
1: In the New King James it says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God.
0: Look, these, two, these, these one comes from one line, the other one comes from another line. You either believe you are saved or you believe you are being saved. But it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. Go to 2 Samuel 21. Let me just kind of give you... I'll give you a silly one and I'll give you a really irritating one and we'll be done. And we could do this all day. I mean, there are so many uh, passages we could go to. But I'll just give you a silly example just to finish up. And then I'll give you a real irritating example just as we finish up. 2 Samuel 21, look at verse 19. 2 Samuel 21, 19. The King James Version of the Bible says this. And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines where Elhanan, the son of jeho a Bethlehemite, notice what it says, slew the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam, all right? So I want you to notice that in this passage we're told Elhanan slew the brother of Goliath. Now is there a problem with that? None in the world wrong with that. The Bible tells us that Goliath had brothers. You know, who killed Goliath? Who knows? David. David not a question. David killed Goliath, right? And here we're told, after Goliath, after David killed Goliath, that in the later on, Elhanan slew the brother of Goliath. What does the English Standard Version say?
3: In 2 Samuel 21, 19, it says, And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jerogam, the Bethlehemite struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam.
0: Now, hold on a second. I want you to notice what he said. He said, Elhanan, the son of Jerogom, the Bethlehemite, knows what he said. This is what the English Standard Version says, says, struck down Goliath the Gittite. Okay, the King James said that Elhanan slew the brother of Goliath. In the ESV, it says that Elhanan struck down Goliath. Now, here's the problem with that. If you go to the story of Goliath, David and Goliath, in the ESV, you know who kills Goliath in, in that version? David. So the ESV has a contradiction. In one place, it tells you David killed Goliath. In another place, it tells you Elhanan struck down Goliath. Look, here's all I'm telling you. A Sunday school kid can tell you who killed Goliath. But these scholars... These learned scholars that went to all their Bible colleges, and they're so smart, they're going to give us a new version of the Bible. They can't tell you who killed Goliath. They get, they get a basic Bible question, who killed Goliath, wrong, and they say, oh, Elhanan struck down Goliath. What about the New American Standard Version?
2: Second Samuel uh, 21, 19, There was war with the Philistines again at Gob, and Olhanan, the son of Oregon, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam.
0: You say, is it a coincidence that two Bible versions got, got the answer wrong? It's because they're coming from a wrong source. They're coming from a different source. They're coming from a corrupted source. You say, well, why would Satan, you know, put that in there? You know what, I think Satan's just laughing at these, you know, at these liberal contemporary ESV, NIV churches who think they're preaching God's word and they've got a Bible in their hand that doesn't even know who killed Goliath. It's just, it's a silly, it's silly, but it kind of should just tell you a lot that these books are corrupted. They're wrong. Let me give you another example. Go to Isaiah 14 and verse 12. This is a more irritating example. This is the last one we'll look at for today. And uh, like I said, we could spend all day doing this. But uh, let me just give you one more Isaiah fourteen and verse twelve. Isaiah fourteen twelve is an interesting verse because it's the one time in scripture that we're given Satan's name, his 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 actual given name. In in the King James version of the Bible, Isaiah fourteen twelve says this: "How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground?" which did weaken the nation. So in Isaiah 14, 12, we're told that Lucifer, that Satan's name is Lucifer, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? And we are given the title of Satan, which is son of the morning, all right? Now, and if you understand angelic bodies or glorified bodies, you know, there's a reason why they're called that because their bodies glow and things like that. They're bright. But let's read it from the New International
1: Version. Uh, the verse reads in verse twelve, "How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn! You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations."
0: Now, here's what I want you to understand: There's a couple of things that happened here. First of all, the name of Lucifer is removed. Now, don't you think that if Satan, if Lucifer was translating a version of the Bible, he would remove his name? You know, like, hey, don't don't put my name in there. You know, but here's what's interesting: There's two things that happened here. Not only is Lucifer, the name of Lucifer, removed from this passage, but also the a, a separate title is put in. Because in First Corinthians fourteen twelve, I'm, I'm sorry, Isaiah fourteen twelve in the King James Bible, it says, "O Lucifer, son of the morning." The new The New International Version says, "Morning star, son of the dawn." Now, here's a problem with that. All right, go to go go to uh, Revelation twenty two verse sixteen. Revelation 22, verse 16. You guys, you guys uh, stay in Isaiah 14:12. all right? But if, if you've got a King James Bible, go to uh, Isaiah 14, uh, uh, Revelation 22, and verse 16. Let me show you something. In Revelation 22, verse 16, the, in the King James Bible, it says this, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. This is Jesus speaking in, in the book of Revelation. I am the root and the offspring of David. Notice what Jesus calls himself. And the bright and morning star you know that one of Jesus' titles is bright and morning star? And the NIV in Isaiah 14, 12, uh, not only does it remove the name Lucifer as the one who has now fallen from heaven, but it inputs the title of Christ, morning star. So in the NIV, who's falling from heaven? Jesus is. In the King James, it's, oh, Lucifer, the son son of the morning. In the NIV, it's the morning star who's falling from heaven. The King James calls Jesus the morning star, but here's what's even, to add insult to injury, the NIV in Revelation 22-16 calls Jesus the morning star. So it's not like, oh, well, they, they just changed morning star, you know, they just changed sun of the morning to morning star. No, the NIV calls Jesus in the book of Revelation the morning star. And then in Isaiah, it says that the morning star is the one that fell from heaven. Say, why would they do that? Here's why they do that. Because the NIV hates Jesus. It hates doctrine. It attacks the deity of Christ. It attacks salvation through Jesus Christ. How about the English Standard Version? What does that say in Isaiah 14, 12?
3: Isaiah 14, 12. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn? How are you cut down to the ground who laid the nations low?
0: Now, again, we see that the name Lucifer is removed. And now they didn't say morning star. They said, oh, day star. Here's what's interesting about that. The King James Version, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. We actually read in our text. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. That is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just saying, do you think it's a coincidence that in the New International Version and in the English Standard Version, in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12, not only did both remove the name of Lucifer, but both added two different titles of Jesus? You say, why would you... I think Saint saint's just mocking. He's just laughing. He just thinks it's funny. I'm going to remove my name and I'm going to put there the name of... Jesus. Go to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4. Uh, We're going to be done with these guys. Thank you guys very much. We appreciate you coming up here. Let's give them a round of applause. They did a good job reading. Go to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4. We'll be done right here. Now look, if you leave here today and you're like, I don't know, okay, it's because you're not paying attention. Because it should be extremely clear I don't know. Which one's the good one? Oh, I don't know. Maybe the one that doesn't attack the deity of Christ. Maybe the one that doesn't add works to salvation. Maybe the one that doesn't say that Jesus fell from heaven. How about that one? If you walk out of here, and you're like, I don't know. I didn't get it. It's because you're not paying attention. It's because you're not interested in the things of God. And look, if there's one thing that we should be interested, it's the word of God. It's where all matters of faith and practice come from. Look, if we're not right on the Bible, then we're not right on anything. And you say, well, do we really need, does it really matter? Do we really need a perfect Bible? Matthew chapter 4, verse 4 is the last place we'll look at today. Matthew 4, 4. This is what Jesus said. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Notice what he says. But by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. You know what Jesus said we needed? Not only did we need the word of God, but that we needed everything. Word of God you know what I'm holding in my hand right now in this King James Bible I've got every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God It is the inspired word it proceeded out of his mouth It's the preserved word people sometimes they want to you know argue about well It's the inspired word, but it's not the or it's the preserved word, but it's not the inspired word Let me explain something to you if you preserve God's inspired words, then you've got the inspired words And you know what I have? I have an every word Bible. I have every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But can the NIV say that when they remove 16 verses out of the Bible? Can all these other modern versions say that when they've changed the Bible, when they've removed things, when they've added things? Look, it is important. And it is the basis of our foundation that we understand that we have, you know, in the English language we have. And look, let me just answer this question. We'll talk more about it next week. We're not saying that other... Other languages can't have the Word of God. Look, would to God that the Word of God, the pure, inspired, preserved Word of God, was in every language. Amen. But in the, English, in the English language, you know what it is? It's the King James Version of the Bible. It's not the New King James, not the NIV. Do we need a perfect Bible? Yes, we do. Because Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now, next week, next week, we're going to continue this thought. Next week, we're going to talk about the role that the Word of God plays in salvation and in christian living because we need to understand that we have god's incorruptible word now how does it affect us how does it help us how does it serve us so make sure you're here next week we, i won't preach as long as i did today i promise but we'll go through and we'll continue this idea of a more sure word of prophecy this is about here tonight i'm going word of prayer heavenly father thank you lord for your word and lord thank you for our church lord and i realize that i i preach much longer than i usually do and uh, I just believe that this is such an important and important uh, doctrine that we need to understand, Lord. And I pray that you would help everybody here to really understand. And if they and if they don't, Lord, help them to really study it and look at it and, and ask themselves, where is the Every Word Bible? Where is the Word of God today? Lord, we thank you for giving us the King James Version of the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.